Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What qualifies someone to be a Bigfoot researcher? How young is too young? What is Bigfoot anyway? Hello and welcome to the 697th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno uh, here on ON 1240, celebrating 70 years of broadcasting here in New England's beautiful Blackstone Valley. I'm Ben, and those age-old questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and father, Paul. And today we welcome a guest who certainly has uh, displaced me as one of the youngest recognized researchers. And uh, we welcome your calls today. The numbers are 800-449-1240. That's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Or, for, or, if, you, or if you'd like to email, you could email us as well. And that's uh, paul at behindtheparanormal.com. And if you're calling from any, any local number, the number is 401-762-1240. Okay, thank you, Ben. Um we're working to get the recording going here. We're going to oh, but it's have going. one of those disappeared shows. We're going. We're, we, we got it. We got it. Anyway, at 16 years of age, Colin Schneider is one of the youngest active researchers in the United States. He has been involved in cryptozoology, the study of uh, strange creatures not recognized by science, and UFO studies since he visited the International Cryptozoological Museum in Portland, Maine at 13 years of age. Colin frequently attends conferences on the unexplained, and he lectures at numerous events in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Colin also is a regional representative for the prestigious Center for Fortfordian Zoology, based in the UK. He hosts the Crypto Kid radio show on WCJV Digital Broadcasting Network, and he has already been a guest on major radio shows. He is a published author with an article in the March edition of Crypto, uh, Cryptid Culture magazine. Find him online at Paranorm 101, that's where 101, paranorm101.blogspot.com. Colin Schneider, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thanks for having me. Oh, oh very good. We, okay, we're just in the audio here. Good. <laughs> okay. Well, take it away, Ben. I shall take it away. Well, it's great to have you here with us, and uh, we see that you recently attended a cryptozo- cryptozoology conference in an, uh, an area of western Pennsylvania that's almost exactly 100 miles south-southwest of uh, where we started a major case last year that involves Bigfoot, UFOs, shadow people, and the like. So do you plan to get involved in the field of investigations anytime soon? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I'd love to. I one of the most interesting parts of this field is definitely talking to witnesses and looking at the places where they supposedly encountered something and collaborating with other witnesses. But it's a little difficult, mainly because of my age, to get out into the field. Um, I mean, I I'm not driving yet, um, so I can't. It's it's hard for my father to get me out to places to look for things. Um, And also, it's a little difficult. You know, yes, I've been doing this for several years, but I'm still not as well-known as other guys. So I don't get calls or emails from as many people as I'd like about their um, experiences. You might have to It's difficult to, you know, get those witness reports. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I certainly understand the feeling because we, you know, we both started around the same age. I was thirteen too, and you know, no one really takes you seriously until you're like thirty. So, 
try so 40. I, or 40. <laughs> but, but don't let that discourage you. This, no, this no, is a new no. time. So you were interested in cryptids before you, before you visited the museum in Portland, or did Lauren Coleman hook you in while you were there? Oh, no. Um, Lauren Coleman had his uh, hooks in my interest way, way longer than that. <laughs> I started watching uh, Monster Quest. That was one of the main things that got me into this. Ah, uh, yes. And Coleman was on almost every episode. So that convinced me to start getting his books, and he became a hero of mine. I, I've been reading Lauren's books for, gosh, since I was eight or nine. Wow, good so. for you. You kind of remind us, uh, yeah, Ben was sick and couldn't go, but we, we released uh, our new book on cryptids yesterday uh, in Danbury, Connecticut at the library, and we, we were talked um, into a, in a very interesting uh, conversation <laughs> with the, one of the library directors to doing a, a cryptid program for young people. And by young people, I mean young people. We had an audience ranging in age from 3 to 14. You know, and so uh, they had nothing on. I guess you had nothing on them, but uh, they were so interested. They they were polite. It was the, the little three year old kept putting his hand up, asking questions. It was just delightful. So um, the, I guess there, there's no such thing as too young to become interested in these things. So, uh, but anyway, Colin, in our pre-interview phone call, uh, I was very impressed with your feet on the ground approach to the subject, the scope of your reading, and your clarity of thought. That's rare today. So where, in your opinion, does cryptozoological research stand today, and are more, more people taking it seriously, in your opinion? I'm not sure if it's more people are taking it seriously as much as it is more people are learning about it. Because when you're looking at the, the beginnings of cryptozoological history, you're looking at Bernard Hovelmans mm. and Ivan T. Sanderson, they had a harder time of getting the word out there about these creatures. They knew of a couple dozen researchers around the country, and they wrote letters back and forth and shared information, but it was you know, more difficult to talk about this stuff. M- most of the time, if you did hear about it, you heard it from the newspaper, because there's some recent sighting going on. And like all kind of waves within the paranormal, the sightings would happen, and then they'd just drop off, and you wouldn't hear anything about it. So people would not really know much about it. But now we have all kinds of shows on every topic within the paranormal. And so I think it's less that people are taking it more seriously now, and it's just more, there's more interest. And whether that's because it's some silly thing that people enjoy watching and making fun of, or if it's because <laughs> they are actually taking them seriously, yeah. I'm not quite sure. You're so right. I knew Ivan Sanderson. I think I don't think I ever knew anyone who was more frustrated yeah. all the time. You know, no, that's that's understandable. I think another another factor is the internet culture, and one of the more fascinating portions of that is a thing called creepy pasta, which I'm I'm sure you know, Colin, but my father probably does not. No, I've heard of it. Oh well, there you go. You're Good, good hey, for I'm you. I'm a 64-year-old millennial. Well, man. you know that. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so essentially the idea of, you know, whether people are interested, whether it's ghost stories or pursuit of truth, it I think that 
is 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 a big a big part of this because you know the whole the whole slender man phenomenon or whatever was really something that was just you know created in the bowels of the internet yeah, an 8 year old brought that up yesterday really yes Oh, want to know uh, about the Slenderman? Yeah, uh, I really kind of wish I, I was I was there for that. Yeah, I would have well, been like, time. yeah, that's that's entirely made up. But the thing is, the the interesting thing is, people have reported more and more experiences about it. Whether you know it's a ghost story or not, perhaps maybe belief is what's bringing it to life. How do you how do you feel about that, uh, Colin? So one of the most interesting things with the paranormal, in my opinion, is the idea of a cult philosophy. And that, uh, from there stems the idea of the tulpa, the thought form, something that immense belief and practice into this, this idea of this creature or, or being, and that in itself springs it to life. I think that's fascinating, and it's something that you can see in a lot of cultures. And really what's interesting when you're looking at it in terms of cryptozoology is that common ideas and common beliefs really do shape this field and what people report. The best example I have is the Loch Ness Monster. Most people, when you ask them what they think the Loch Ness Monster is, if they don't immediately shut you down and say it's insane and doesn't exist, the most common answer you will probably get is that it's a plesiosaur, a type of prehistoric reptile that lived in the sea, kind of looked like a seal with a uh, long snake-like neck in a snake-like head, eel-like neck and heads, almost. And what's interesting is when you look at Loch Ness Monster reports that are related to the idea of a plesiosaur, you get the neck that comes above the water, like in the famous surgeon's photo. And then you get the creature coming on land and kind of just pulling itself along on its slippers. But if you look at what some recent discoveries concerning the plesiosaur within the field of paleontology, it's actually been shown that they couldn't have supported their necks above the water, and they couldn't have pulled themselves on land. But what's really interesting is that they're still sometimes reported to be like that. Not just the Loxus monster, but many lake monsters that are supposedly plesiosaurs. People say that that, that happens because that's the common image of the plesiosaur. And it's almost been drilled into their head that the Loch Ness Monster is a plesiosaur. So they think, well, that's what a plesiosaur looks like, so that's what it should look, that's what it should be. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't know if it's misidentification and they're just understanding of what they think the plesiosaur should be, the witnesses, if that affects it, which I think is quite plausible, but I also think it's at least incredibly interesting to think about it as the idea of what something should be is actually shaping reality. Well, th- th- that sort of matches up with the approach we take to all paranormal phenomena is, is that people, well, there are several layers here. People bring their own understanding and their own paradigm to the experience. And that, and therefore, they participate in the experience, and their interpretation comes from what they bring with them, so to speak. Uh, for example, uh, very often Bigfoot experiencers, and I, I believe I'm one of them. I mean, it, and I, I never took it very—I took it seriously, but not—you know—what happens to you? It's a little, a little deeper uh, for that. Um, and so, last September, I, I felt—and um, you know—I was right there, and I felt privileged. 
and I felt very much at peace. Other people are very afraid. So as examples of what you bring to the experience, I think perhaps the, the attitude, uh, the, the uh, whatever paradigm you're operating from may have some bearing on the experience and the labels we put on it. You know, uh, ghosts have to be spirits of the dead. What else could they be? And uh, people haven't studied their quantum physics and may not be anything of the kind. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, what people bring to the experience and what they take away? I, I think that's definitely an important aspect. Even if you're looking at it from a skeptical point of view that these things are just misidentifications or misunderstandings of known phenomena, you, everything that you see is adapted and changed into what you personally believe and understand. And it happens unconsciously. We all do it. So if you see something that you can't quite explain or just is so incredibly strange, it's logically going to be morphed into whatever you feel most comfortable with. Oftentimes, that is the folklore of the area. And I think that the folklore at least doesn't get enough credit in its involvement in the paranormal and cryptozoology especially. And I think that less and less researchers are looking into the history and the folklore and what changes and affects these sightings as opposed to a lot of people just go out to a place where ghosts may supposedly be or, or Bigfoot has been seen and they, they use all these high-tech equipment and try to get the evidence. But they ignore the history and the, the really important effects that it might have on the phenomenon. Very true. Absolutely. Ben, did you have a... Well, I'm, I, I suppose that actually, you know rings true for pretty much any sort of investigation whether it's you know ufos or any any other any other form of the paranormal would take that the perception whether it's viewed through the eyes of oh well we gotta prove it to materialistic science or whether you know people are just trying to prove it to themselves there has to be a balance of of both you know historical analysis and folklore analysis and use of investigative techniques well every uh Folklorist will tell you that uh, some grain of truth somewhere, you know, started uh, any legend or story that has come down to us. Uh, no matter how much baggage it's picked up over the ages, there's always something that started it, and people uh, perhaps applied their own uh, label to it, as we said. That's true. Uh, so, Colin, what in your studies has jumped out at you, pardon the image, uh, as the, the most remarkable... Bigfoot sightings that you have encountered in the sense of having studied or witnesses you've spoken with? Well, like I, like I said previously, I have not, uh, unfortunately, gotten the chance to speak to many witnesses. But um, out of the several that I have talked to, the I have a family friend who has had several encounters with various things. And... I don't know, for some reason, it, his encounters, when I talk to him about him, and I've interviewed him, and ha I've had him draw out what he's seen and fill out witness reports, I've done an, a lot of it, extensive work with him. And I've known him for years, and I knew him for years before he told me that he had encountered several different weird things. And I think, really, what has me convinced that he's encountered he so let me back up real quick he said that 
he's encountered several different unusual things. The one that he brings up the most often, and the one that I've talked about quite a, quite a bit, is he said that he was hunting one day, and he was up in a tree stand. He was bow hunting, um, and he was on a friend's property. And it was, oh, close to two in the afternoon. He was re- getting ready to go home. He hadn't gotten anything that day when he started hearing this buzzing sound coming from his right side, his left side, I'm sorry, his left side. He said that this buzzing sound started getting louder, and he saw this winged creature fly right in front of his face. It was maybe two or three inches from his nose. He said that it was about eight inches tall, had a 12-inch wingspan, and he said it reminded him of a fairy. Hmm. said that it was humanoid-looking. He couldn't quite place if it was female or male. There was no real indicators. He said that it looked... It it was a brownish color. It had uh, two sets of wings, kind of almost like a butterfly. They they, um, a larger set with a smaller set under them. And what is really interesting about this case is when he drew out what he saw the head of the fairy that he he says he saw looks incredibly similar to the drawing of the gray alien on the cover of, like, all of Whitley Whitley Stryber's books. Hmm. It looked very similar to that. And I've known him for years. He said that he was never interested in this stuff until he started encountering things for himself. He's an avid hunter. He's hunted for 30-odd years, maybe even longer. I'm not quite sure how old he is exactly. I've known him for most of my life, and I wholeheartedly believe that he saw something that made him think it was a fairy. Well, did that happen? Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Did that happen on the shores of Lake Michigan by any chance? No. It happened in... Um, Kind of in the middle of nowhere in northeast Ohio. Oh, okay. I'll tell you why I asked um, that in a minute, but go ahead. So the, the encounter, he said, lasted only maybe 10 seconds. He said that it just buzzed in front of his face for a little bit, then flew off on into the woods on the other side. Now, what's really interesting is, unfortunately, later that year, the owner of the property who is an elderly lady unfortunately passed but what's interesting is that in her will she stated that she wanted a ring of evergreens planted quite literally right in front of the tree that he was in (laughs) because she felt that that was the center of the property and that was where all the energy was Hmm. and she wanted to thank the fairies Interesting. Or she never specified what she wanted to thank the fairies for, but she wanted to thank the fairies. Yeah. Well, this particular story—it's in our new book, a copy of which we'd like to send you. By the way, and you know, to thank you for being with us today, um, we'll get your address later. Uh, the oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. The uh, reports that we heard—and we got this from Nick Redfern. Uh, and there were a number of reports, actually, from um, the area around Lake Michigan and, and from northern Ohio about 
beings like this. Uh, I'm thinking of one case where the man was walking his dog, and the dog also saw this, so he realized he wasn't crazy. Uh, coming from the shores of the lake toward into his own front yard, and a, a being precisely, you know, to the, the one you described just now, flew in front of him, like sort of sort of from the uh, the upper left to the lower right, and then disappeared on the side of the house. So this is not the first time we've heard of that that sort of thing. Let me get your impression uh, of this, Colin. One of the uh, reports that we had, which dates, and I don't have it in front of me, I don't want to speculate, but I believe it was 1968 from Ireland, uh, a part of Ireland where there are, in the Republic, where there are lots of glacial lakes, uh, caves, things of this kind, uh, and a lot of uh, unexplored subterranean areas, uh, be they underground rivers or caves. There was a family uh, named the Coins, C-O-Y-N-E-S, uh, and they were peat farmers, and they were down at, at least the, the man and his son were down at the shore of one of these relatively small lakes, and, all, and they saw a creature such as um, we often hear about, uh, the plesiosaur type of uh, configuration, that sort of thing, and it was just sort of swimming aimlessly, uh, black slippery skin, this kind of thing, and eventually the whole family saw this. But the funny thing was that they noted that it had, according to them, had no eyes. And have you ever read of any reports of, the, of that sort of thing, uh, any of these uh, creatures at all, whether they be lake dwellers or whatever, with no eyes? Because we have a theory why it might have had no eyes, if that's true. What say you? Um, nothing recent, at least contemporary, comes to mind immediately, but... I am reminded there are vague legends of what is called a, a selkie, which is this mm. uh, seal-like being with the head of a woman. And um, they, they're fairy-type creatures that are said to be in Ireland. And they're these, these really vague, obscure legends of, them be, uh, of certain ones being cave dwellers without eyes. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that comes to mind. That's exactly what we were thinking, because uh, with all the underground uh, the network of caves or rivers, uh, this may be a creature such as there are a number of known creatures who live in that live in caves, living a rather mole-like existence. Yes, exactly, and they have their eyes have atrophied and they've disappeared in some species. You know, because there's there's nothing but total darkness there. So uh, that, that's something we had thought. Maybe um, one wonders um, not to get uh, Lord of the Rings uh, on the mind here, but one wonders what uh, dwells beneath. You know, sometimes. So, uh, one of the oddest things that we've encountered, and I want to get your thoughts on this too, Colin, uh, is when you see cryptids together uh, with other cryptids or in the presence of things like UFOs. And I'm thinking of a case, I believe it was 1973, outside a village in France, relatively well-known case, where a couple was in the lover's lane there, and all of a sudden a craft came down or something, the light came down, landed in a snow-covered field, and out, uh, and then the, you have emerging the, the more or less classic gray type creatures, two of them. Uh, also you've got, uh, two of the, what w- was called in, in the 50s and 60s, the, uh, Nordic types with the long blonde hair, that sort of thing. And then a Bigfoot, or at least something that would match that description seemed to get out, and they both testified that this was true. Um, so I think we're going to be taking a break shortly here, but after the break I wanted to get your thoughts on any relationship 
that you believe you've seen uh, between Bigfoot, other cryptids, and particularly Bigfoot and UFOs. Okay, so let's, um, well, we're a little early, but eh, we'll take our break now. Anyway, nobody's going to complain. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, broadcasting for the 70th year, and congratulations to our colleagues here. We'll be right back with our fascinating guest, Colin Schneider, and our talk about cryptids and everything else. We'll be right back. The Extra Point. Afternoons on ON 1240 Radio, bringing you local interviews, stories, and opinions on the local athletes with none other than radio great Lou Mandeville. Yes, that's me. Afternoons Monday through Friday on ON 1240. Okay, and we are back already, and we'll talk about a number of charities that our show has adopted during our announcement period. A lot of veterans' charities and others uh, that would be beneficial to a number of people, uh, and you might want to consider uh, assisting if you can. So let's get back to our discussion with Colin Schneider, uh, the youngest guest we've ever had on the show, 16-year-old Bigfoot researcher, cryptid researcher, uh, well-traveled to many conferences and uh, things of this kind. And uh, before we um, burn up this hour, which we're doing very quickly, Colin, uh, what, uh, what, what is going on with you as far as the future is concerned? What uh, conferences do you plan to attend next, and are you speaking at any soon, and what are you working on as far as writing is concerned? Well, um, well speaking-wise, I think I am speaking at a total of eight conferences this year. Good heavens. Um, I think that, I think the no, that number's correct. Uh-huh. Um, that's, a, that's as many as doing a lot. And the, the one that I've been pushing the most, because I, lo- I think the conference is going to be amazing, and I'm the keynote speaker for, is the Albert Witch Festival in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. That's October 14th, and it's going to be totally awesome <laughs> that's great um good i'm really you. looking forward to that very good and um, are, you, are you working on anything uh, as far as uh, new articles or even books are concerned yes so um the next issue which should be coming out later this month of cryptic culture magazine i think it's number six i'm going to have an article in there about the um cryptozoological history of dwarves and the idea of the littler Bigfoot creatures. Uh-huh. Um, I'm really excited about that article. It's a topic that I love, and I've done a lot of research on. Outstanding. So. Very good. Well, let's get back to the question we were going to discuss after the break, which, of course, uh, your, your uh, thoughts on a relationship, if any, between Bigfoot, cryptids in general, and UFOs. What do you think about that? Well, I know it's a topic that many, many, many cryptozoologists try to shy away from, because out of everything in the paranormal, I think that cryptozoology, especially with the researchers that are in it, have the, this idea of, we are the scientific field in the weird, <laughs> and, I mean, everything you have to try to be as scientific as you possibly can, but I think when you're dealing with the paranormal, you can't exclude things, because they're too weird or don't fit into the current scientific view. Because we are the weird section. So if we keep pushing the weirder stuff or the stuff that's too weird for the weird, it, it just, you get a smaller and smaller view and it's less scientific in my opinion. 
Now, with that said, I think that the idea, specifically with Bigfoot and UFOs, the connection there, I think it's quite interesting, and I think it's a valid point and something that needs more investigating. I personally have not done a lot concerning that um, because there are already many fantastic researchers that have really broken into that topic, especially my mentor, Stan Gordon. Hmm. And he's been doing uh, Bigfoot UFO research for 50 years in Pennsylvania. And during the 1973 UFO wave, he was tracking literally thousands of UFO reports, many of them happened in the same place, same time as a Bigfoot report, sometimes even having the Bigfoot interact with the object seen. Mm-hmm. So there are already these researchers that are looking into this and trying to push the weirder side of the weird into the mainstream part of the weird. And what I try to do is go just a little bit further to the other weird stuff that people have kind of ignored and try to make that better known or more mainstream or kind of make some points into that becoming better known or more mainstream. For example, one of my biggest research projects right now is concerning mutilation cases and how they connect to cryptids. Mm -hmm. For example, in the 70s and 80s, there were a ton of reports of Bigfoot-like creatures actually attacking, mutilating, and draining the blood of numerous livestock, specifically chickens. For some reason, they they seem to love uh, draining the blood of chickens. Um, And now, since 1995, that topic has really been um, hijacked by the chupacabra. And when you're looking at any type of cryptid mutilation case, that's the only thing that comes up. But I'm of the opinion that that's not the only... Um, example, and I think that the chupacabra has kind of pushed itself too far in and made itself too wide and too broad of a topic, I think mainly because the name is cool sounding. Um, So I've been working on trying to look into mutilation cases connected to felines, such as uh, alien big cats, um, which there are a lot of, and of course the Bigfoot encounters, and I've even found several examples of flying humanoid-type creatures attacking and draining the blood of animals. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the um, underlying, I suppose, uh, or more disconcerting questions that surround the, crypto- the cryptozoological studies, I suppose, or experiences, certainly, um, Bigfoot um, and others uh, are, I suppose, questionable because of their size, uh, in this matter, but where do they come from? Where do they go? And, and when I'm thinking of our, our flap cases, as we call it in Pennsylvania. We get all sorts of things going on. You have um, small, well, relatively small woodlots, maybe eight to ten acres here and there. Uh, you, you know the the lay of the land in that area. Uh, farms, uh, not a huge population, but people and things of this kind. You know, how could a population of a, a large mammal of that uh, size uh, live. Uh, where where could it come? Where does it come from? Where does it go? We have theories on that, but what do you think? Honestly, I'm not sure. I think that there are several good points that the um, skeptical side makes that that it is, even the areas that are 
fairly open and don't have a lot of people, still have enough people for big things to be seen, that the, the food can't really quite sustain an animal of that size. I think that is perfectly valid, and I completely agree. Okay. But what I always point out is these things are still being seen, and at a rate that can't quite fit within it, within them all being explained by a bear or a uh, misidentification or something. I, I think that what really needs to be done to look at, or specifically Bigfoot, because that's the biggest example here, I think that what needs to be done before anyone makes any kind of resounding statement is we need to make an, an extensive database of sightings. Yes, BFRO has several hundred um, cases collected. I think it's close to, closer to a thousand now. But even then, it's not a big enough scale for it to be a, a proper examination of if these are real creatures, where do they go? Do they migrate? How, how are their habits? Because there's a lot that we can actually answer if we have a big enough data um, group. And, and the problem is a lot of Bigfoot researchers a lot of infighting. A lot of researchers go, well, I'll share my information with you, but you can't share it with him because I don't like him. And there, there's problems with other people. Or, or yeah, some of researchers have properly had their information stolen or, or have had cases that they've discussed extensively then claim to have been first discovered by someone else. And I understand that. And the thing is, they start kind of hoarding their information and and not sharing it with others, sharing the cases at least. I think that all witnesses, all witnesses should definitely remain confidential unless they explicitly state otherwise. But I think that the information itself concerning the case, where it was, when it was, is essential, and we need to have a bigger database. And I've been a proponent for this for years, and I know a lot of colleagues that I work with frequently also are proponents of this, but nothing is really being done about it. I've tried contacting people about um, a, a shared database, and uh, no one really seems interested in doing it. Well, no, that, that's a, a problem throughout the paranormal realm. Oh, God, um, it is. Yeah, I mean, their politics and very, very unprofessional behavior, attitudes, uh, very shallow thinking. And uh, you, unfortunately, you find that in the scientific community as well. I was just going to say, you find that exact same thing yeah. <laughs> in the scientific well, you, community. Well, you might you find well, more, hopefully well, more. Well, yes and no. You do find it in the scientific community sometimes, but it's at a very, very smaller rate. And even, for example, the example I love to bring up all the time is during the Cold War, chemists between the U.S. and Russia for a long time were actually sharing information about the discovery of new elements and mm -hmm. working sort of together about discovering new elements until the government shut that down. So science can really transcend these, these political boundaries. But the problem is no one seems to want to do that. And it's, I think it's kind of sad, and it's difficult for someone like me who's just getting into this and no, is agree. trying yeah. to make heads and tails of this strange phenomenon, and then I have to deal with all the infighting, and, and I'm 
currently caught between two groups that that one can't stand the other, the the other can't. There's all kinds of political arguments, and that's hard. It makes this field a lot more difficult to get into it. And no, I certainly agree. That and that makes it difficult for people my age to really be interested in this stuff. And the, the problem then is we don't get new new of uh, the next generation. We don't get new researchers. Well, that, or, that's or true. The new researchers we do get, they aren't of the quality of the researchers that came before. Well, sometimes they can just be curiosity seekers, you know. And right. there's no discipline of thought and things of this kind. That's why we don't join things. Um, I belong to MUFON, although I think my dues are over. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, American Society for Psychical Research. But it's just, uh, you know, as a, as a you know, there are a lot of groups who have invited us to join them. And we, we won't do it. I mean, we, we don't, you know, we, we, sh- we share whatever we discover as soon as we discover it. Uh, we, we not I shouldn't call it discoveries. Impressions, thoughts, theories, uh based on our own experiences, and people can judge for themselves. But I think that, unfortunately, as with most things in society, it comes down to bucks. You know, uh, even in science today, uh, I think there's probably some, fewer people who are pure of heart as they were back in the 50s and 40s, uh, simply because of grants, tenure, and things of this kind. Uh, We've had scientists tell us that. There are certain impressions that, that I picked up while working in psychiatric hospitals as a seminary student and as a grad student in psychology, and I've shared those with groups of, say, psychiatrists. And they uh, publicly will get all upset because, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. But then uh, afterwards they will individually, uh, a few of them anyway, will say, I thought the same thing, but I don't dare say it because I'll lose my job, that sort of thing. So so, th- th- so there's that aspect of it. Um, as far as... Um, Areas that uh, may be affected, uh, as you say, as we have discussed, various cryptids um, appearing together, UFOs, that sort of thing. Do you feel that there are what we call flap areas, or are these coincidental, you know, occurrences? Uh, we're thinking of the whole Mothman thing in the '60s. You had not only that phenomenon, you had. Uh, people talking, and people have told us they had uh, ghost phenomena, poltergeists, and of course the UFOs and men in black and all this business. Uh, do you feel that areas, certain areas are hot, so to speak, or hot spots or flap areas? And uh, have you uh, looked into that at all in your own studies? You know, patterns in phenomena, whether it be cryptids or anything else. Oh, yeah, I certainly do think so. Um, I mean, I live. In driving distance of Point Pleasant, I've been there quite a few times, and I go down to the Mothman Festival all the time. The Mothman mm. and uh, Mothman Prophecies by John Keel are big influences on what I do now. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there are definitely, well, I, I like to call them window areas. Sure. Um, that's, that's what, that's what John Keel used called. in his uh, Mothman and Other Curious Encounters book. And... Right now, I'm working on one of the projects that I'm working on is kind of cataloging these window areas because a lot of people have these areas that they like to go to because there's a lot of weird stuff. One of the best ones that I found in the country is right next to me, the Chestnut Ridge in uh, western Pennsylvania. Pretty much every kind of weird thing you can name, it's, it's there, at least at some point. In, it, in history so I, th- I think it's remarkable 
And I think that it's something that I keep saying this a lot in every interview I do and on my show all the time. Something that needs to be researched further. And it's something that I don't just say it needs to be researched further. I, I'm working on researching. I'm working on a catalog. All of these um, places I hope to eventually take the catalog and maybe turn it into a book. Um, kind of like a, a road guide to the weird, if you will. I mean, there, there are several, but the, the, the several are more like the, the listing Ape Canyon, the, the place where the sure. yeah. Bigfoot in the California, 20s attacked yeah. um, some miners. And the places where weird things ha- happened once. And what I want to do is talk about places that happen all the, where weird stuff happens all the time. Um, there really isn't a book out there that solely talks about window areas and, and um, places of high strangeness, if you will. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, that, because we're doing the same thing, and perhaps we can coordinate as we go, why do you think we always, always run into the military or something that appears to be the military in these flap areas, which are kind of a specialty of ours. We're working on six of them right now. Why, why, um, why would we keep running into that sort of, sort of thing, that aspect of it? I'm not sure. Um, I think at least in the uh, 40s to 60s, it was because all this weird stuff was, that was really the start of it. Not the start of the phenomenon, but the start of it getting attention. Mm. I think that at that time, the military was at least trying to figure out what in the world was going on. Um, because weird craft in the sky are always a concern for any kind of military or any kind of government. So that being connected to any other type of thing that is unusual would logically cause concern. Um, right now, I'm not sure because... Um, the, the, I don't want to say official statement, but what you hear all the time is that this stuff never exists. Um, Project Blue Book disproved it all, um, all that type of stuff. So I don't know. Um, I hate trying to come up with conspiracy theories and, and uh, you know, saying that the government's trying to work with the aliens to hide their yeah, craft right. or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I, it's an it interesting aspect. Um, and there is a lot of research being done on it, but almost solely concerning UFOs. Um, Nick Redford's done some research concerning governments and cryptozoology, but there's a lot less, um, out there, at least. Um, I personally, while I think it's interesting, um, I'm less inclined to get into that because I think it'll just give me a bunch of headaches trying to get... Um, interviews with the government people and then work with oh, them yes. and whatever. Yeah. Uh, but whoever, I think that people definitely should if it's something that they find particularly interesting. I'm happier just cataloging the weird stuff that goes on in places and, um, you know, talking about, um, things that less people know about and the more, the, 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 the newer stuff. Mm-hmm. Less, not newer stuff, but the, the stuff less people know about and the things that, that really, I love when I bring up um, something extremely unusual, especially the mutilations at conferences. Mm-hmm. And I look into the audience as I'm talking, and I see their eyes kind of give, give that weird expression. They, they weren't expecting that. Don't you love that? that? Um, I think that's fun. Yes. Okay. Amazing. Um, all right. What uh, What are you noticing as far as 
newer reports coming in. You mentioned newer reports. Are there any trends? Uh, what phenomena are occurring most frequently in your studies? What uh, cryptids are being seen? Uh, is there any pattern there? Uh, is there anything new? Because we are, we're always running into things that really don't even have names yet, you know, in these flap areas that people are reporting. Uh, strange kind of boxy, I don't know if we call them humanoids or what, like in the, the Litchfield case, but yeah. um, bouncing by windows, things of this kind. You know, are you encountering anything new? And uh, even if it's uh, not new, what, uh, what patterns are you noticing as far as frequency of appearances of certain cryptids? Well, I think the number one um, topic that has really been on the tip of everyone's tongue lately is the dogman. Um, huh. Last year there was a Dogman Symposium that I attended. It was awesome. And it's just getting all this new attention. Um, like, there was a big um, surge of attention and interest um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, a lot of TV shows latched onto that. But, I mean, looking at it now, I think that it's just skyrocketed. Hmm. I've actually encountered people at conferences that are less familiar with Bigfoot than they are with dog bed. Really? I think that's remarkable. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. Um, because um, I've had several articles um, published concerning the dogman phenomenon. So when I'm talking, unless I'm talking on a specific topic, um, if I'm just talking about re- my research, it always comes up. And I people are very interested in it, and it's getting a lot of attention. Um, I, I think that's fascinating. I also think that... Uh, Fairies. Well, that's not particularly cryptozoology. It's definitely folklore. Well, that's it's humanoids. one of the things that I focus on. Yeah. And, you know, they've been growing in interest and attention. There was a uh, fairy conference hosted in New York uh, two months ago, I think. Maybe it, was, maybe it was last month. It was sometime fairly recently. It, they had speakers lined up, a couple UFO guys that I know, um... Uh, one of my friends, Ron Murphy, who's an expert on the fairy lore. Um, and so that's really gotten a lot of attention. When I talk about my uh, friends' fairy stories, uh, I get a lot of response. I get I get more response concerning that um, when I talk about it than even the dogman sometimes. So do we. Uh, at least in the area I am. Fairies and fairy lore and fairy stories are definitely electric, and it's it's a yeah, fascinating yeah. topic for many people. You'll find someone and there's a, book. a lot of attention that it's getting. Uh, I think Ben puts it best when he says, "How do you put that with the the word?" I fairy? mean, just just because you know the word fairy just sort of brings to mind something goofy, like you think you just yeah, you know, Tinkerbell or yeah, something. pretty much you think of Tinkerbell, you know, but it's 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 just the word that that makes people think, you know, yeah, weird and, and things. The, the, the stigma they'll, they'll, it brings. They'll shut off. Yeah, the but, conversation but it seems weird this. now that it's coming back into, you know, the, the folklore of, whether it's from people's cultural backgrounds, especially people from, you know, like Europe or wherever, yeah. or even in Puerto Rico that you that you dealt with. Yes, that, that was uh, really amazing. I almost got in trouble on that one. But it's just that, that uh, maybe the word, maybe we need to, to use, uh, you know, a diminutive winged humanoids or something, mm. you know, rather than fairy, because it invites disbelief, perhaps. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, you well, don't want to shut it off because uh, there may be uh, cryptids or, or humanoids or some species that is uh, embedded in our folklore, but not uh, not taken seriously, and perhaps should be. 
Well, I still like to use fairy because, you know, if, if, when you're in the field and you're coming up with all these weird terms like cryptid and, uh, you know, uh, I use diminutive humanoids a lot when I'm talking uh, dwarves mm-hmm. and um, UFOs and USOs and um, the, the, the daylight disks and all those, those terms. I think it seems to turn people off of the subject. They don't... Mm-hmm. I know it's important for you know, accurate um, descriptions and um, cataloging and that type of thing. But when you're just talking to people about this subject, or if you're giving a lecture, you know, at a library to the general public, I think that it's important to use terms like fairy or uh, flying saucer because, you know, it gets them interested and it, it makes them more likely to listen to you. And thus, you get you might get a couple cases out of it. You might get something that mm-hmm. leads you down a different road or a, or a road that corroborates whatever you're looking into right now. And I think if you use something like a diminutive winged humanoid, <laughs> people yeah. aren't going to click with it as True. much. And think, well, well, that's I was, what well, I my tongue was in my cheek as when much I said as that. You say, <laughs> as much as you say, if you say, well, this person saw a fairy. And, you know, when you say fairy... Um, when you're talking folklore, fairy, huge range of things, and it really depends on your definition. When I am talking fairies, I always try to define it. I use the term fairy often as a uh, term for pretty much any folkloric entity that comes from another realm of power and involves themselves with our world or our nature spirits. That's what I use fairy for. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Well, we're just about out of time, Colin. Uh, tell us about where people can find out more about you on the net. Because you have a blog, do you? Yes, so my blog is, um, I call it the Crypto Kid. Um, yeah. You can find it at paranorm101.blogspot.com. And I try to talk about what I'm up to. Um, sometimes I put up interesting newspaper reports. If I it found, is, I've, I've looked at it. It's um, really good conferences that I've attended. I recently did a review of the Mothman, the most recent Mothman documentary from Small Town Monsters. Um, I, I try to put up a lot of interesting things that people other than, um, you know, uh, paranormal researchers would find interesting. And you can also find me at wcjvradio.com. Mm-hmm. And that's where you can listen to my radio show every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hmm called The Crypto Kid, and I talk about pretty much everything I've talked about here. I have guests on every week, and we talk about, we don't talk about, we don't sit and talk about Bigfoot or the Bigfoot cases from 50 years ago or the, you know, the Mothman from 50 years ago. We talk about what's new and what's recent and what's interesting, mm-hmm. and we try to talk less about well-known, established things, at least in the, the field of the paranormal and more about things that people wouldn't know about unless they listen to the show or do extensive research themselves. Okay. Um, I'm always trying to break boundaries concerning the show. Very good. Well done. We'll be in touch after the show to get, uh, you know, about the book. And Colin Snyder, thank you so much for being with us, and we look forward to talking to you again. Indeed. Okay. Oh, yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for having me on. Great. It was a real pleasure. Talk to you soon.
Okay, folks, uh, our newest new book, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, is now available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle, and we will have copies available for sale at all our forthcoming events. The official book release took place yesterday at the, the Danbury Public Library in Connecticut. Had a great turnout. Uh, lots of uh, young people, very young people in some cases. Um, and uh, we, we just thank everybody out at the library there. Uh, Aurelio Maraca uh, of the library staff, his lovely wife, Corinne Mansberg, who was also our, the illustrator for the book, and our good friend, Lisa. Uh, oh, actually, Lisa couldn't come. Anyway, we... <laughs> We had, uh, I would thank uh, Ben's mom, uh, Jackie, for staffing our book table. It was, uh, she came unexpectedly. It was a real pleasure to have her there with us. And, uh, there we go. So if you can't get one of get to one of our events, you would still like an autographed copy of any of our books. You can get one or more at our online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. Our 2016 book, uh, our old new book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is in most bookstores. And if they don't have it, they can get it. It's also available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other online retailers. It's not available as an e-book yet. Uh, that, that's uh, our publisher has a uh, their own way of doing that. And again, uh, you can get an autographed copy of any of these books at behindtheparanormal.com. So with July almost here, we have a little time off, and our uh, next presentation uh, will be on Thursday, July 27th, at the Prospect Senior Center in Prospect, Connecticut, at 1 p.m. And this is open to the public. Now there is a phone number on that. We'll give it to you next week. Uh, Labor Day weekend, September 3rd and 4th, which is not that far away, will again will again find us at the Exeter UFO Festival in New Hampshire, a terrific annual event that benefits local children's charities, uh, sponsored by the local local Kiwanis Club. Uh, our subject on Saturday will be flap areas, UFOs, and the paranormal on steroids. On Sunday, for the second year in a row, uh, we'll do our live show from the Exeter Town Hall with a panel of speakers. And on Saturday, September 30th, uh, we'll talk about strange connections, UFOs, uh, cryptids, and uh, ghosts in western Connecticut and beyond at the Brandywine Living Center in Litchfield, Connecticut, heart of the Litchfield Triangle. Uh, then on October 6th and 7th, we'll be back at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts, where our subject will be the fur flies, Bigfoot, and UFOs. More fall events will include the Hudson Valley UFO Conference in Danbury, Connecticut, and a program at the Portsmouth Public Library in New Hampshire in October. As of, as of yesterday, I think that, that's been changed to the Western Connecticut UFO Conference, but we'll, we'll be telling you all about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, all right. So... In November, we'll be at the Para-Unity Conference in Felsmere, Florida. Check that out. Uh, we'll give you more information as we get closer to that. What do we got next week, Ben? So next week, we have quite a few things going on. We have a uh, on July 22nd. Second. Second. Oh, God, I'm like a month ahead. Uh, we'll, we'll welcome UFO researcher and disclosure activist Dr. Irene Scott, who says she has discovered a new witness to the 1947 crash at Roswell, New Mexico. And our subject is 70 Years of Lies, Misinformation, and Government Cover-Up. Okay, we'll leave you very quickly here with a, a thought from Richard Friedman, as quoted in our new book, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, etc. Uh, a colleague of mine saw a Yeti, but it was black, two-dimensional, and moving fast. It was like a man hole, man-shaped hole in reality. Strange. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and we'll see you Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of... Behind the Paranormal with Paul 